We come this morning to a part of the scriptures that is all too familiar to us for all the wrong reasons. It's become etched in our mind, not because we have read the words of Matthew 2 over and over, but because we have sung carols. Uh, Carols that sometimes have little scriptural basis. Uh, These were probably not kings. Uh, They were magi or wise men. We don't know that there were three of them because after all, one person can bring three gifts and 10 people can bring three gifts. You know those people in your families. Uh, They were... uh, We're not even sure if they were men. And so I must ask you this morning if you would try your best to enter into this part of God's word as though it were your first time to listen carefully and attentively to what it actually does say and to go away from this place meditating on God's word to us today. Over the course of his gospel, Matthew develops the theme of the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, Matthew is concerned uh, that his readers understand that Jesus is the long-promised one, the Messiah, the Christ. Already in chapter 1, Matthew has introduced us to a genealogy that includes the promises that were made to both Abraham and David. When the angel speaks to Joseph, Matthew adds the commentary in verse 22 of chapter 1 that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even the name that the angel told Joseph to give to the child born to Mary is pregnant with fulfillment language. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now to give you a little bit more background of what is taking place here in Matthew, we need to understand some of the background of what takes place in the larger story of the Bible. Uh, When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they were cast out of the garden, we read that the Lord put an angel to guard the east side of the garden. In other words, it seems that Adam and Eve left the garden, they rebelled, they sinned, and they moved eastward. Uh, When Cain killed Abel and he was banished, he again, we're told, moved eastward. When the inhabitants of the world banded together to build the great tower in Genesis 11, we're told that they were moving eastward. Now more important uh, than all of that is what happens next in the story of the Bible for when we get to the end of Genesis 11 and the beginning of Genesis 12, we meet Abraham. And God calls Abraham to leave his country and his family and he gives him three promises. Abraham is promised a place, a land that God will show him. He is promised uh, that he will have a great people, many descendants, that he will be made into a great nation. And thirdly, he is promised that all peoples on the earth will be blessed through him. So when the foreigners come from the east, our ears should perk up because all of a sudden there is a move not from west to east, but from east to west. And these are foreigners. These are not Israelites or Jews. What is it that's happening here that is different to everything that has happened before? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we read, during the time of King Herod, these magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked. 
Uh, Magi were originally designated as a, a priestly clan from the Medes and the Persians. They were specialists in interpreting dreams. We may have met them back in the book of Daniel. Uh, later, the word Magi comes to be used of those who possessed superior knowledge and ability. Uh, so we kind of connote them as being wise men. Uh, but they had great knowledge in things like astrology. They were oriental sages. They were soothsayers. Later on, that term came to uh, denote uh, or be labeled people who were sorcerers or magicians. And finally, it actually uh, came to be known for people who were quacks and deceivers and seducers. So there's a very really wide range of meaning that we can attach to these magi that we meet here. And although we cannot know exactly who or what they were, there is a point that God is making and it cannot be clearer. They are from the nations and their significance in the story can be found in the question that they ask in verse two. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Three times in these 12 verses we're told of their desire to worship. There it is in verse two. Uh, Herod echoes it in verse eight. He says he wants to go and worship him. And there we have it when he find the child in verse 11 that they bowed down and they worshiped him. Uh, this first story after Jesus' birth that introduces us to these magi that had traveled for such a long difference to offer worship and homage to this newborn king in Judea, they arrive in Jerusalem and they cause a great disturbance. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, all of Jerusalem was disturbed, and so they called all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law to find out from them if they knew where the Messiah was to be born. But the thing is that beyond the unexpected worshipers that are looking for baby Jesus, uh, these astrologers uh, that the Bible would have considered sinners, for it forbade divination, for this one special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself where the pagans were looking. Without ever condoning astrology, Matthew's narrative challenges our prejudice against the outsiders to our faith. Even the most unlikely, unexpected, and far off person may respond to Jesus if given the opportunity. Friends, here in these first few verses of Matthew, as we meet these foreigners coming from the nations to find God's great, long-awaited, promised one, we hear a resounding call to preach the gospel to all people, and perhaps also a rebuke uh, to us who know the gospel not to play God, not to pick and choose whom we will share the gospel of salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ with. The gospel God makes clear through these wise men is for all people. 
Those we least expect to come and honor Jesus, in fact, worship him. And so let us not stand in the way of God working in people's lives. Let us not play God. Let us not be the, the gatekeepers to the kingdom of God or the guardians of the gospel. For it is God's kingdom and God's gospel. And we are but unworthy servants who ourselves were once far off. The second thing that we notice uh, the second uh, challenge to our own uh, preconceptions and prejudice as we read through this story is concerning our own knowledge of the Bible. Uh, Herod sends for the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he asks them, because he doesn't know himself where the Messiah was to be born, and they reply, well, he's to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what was promised long ago. And they quote from Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, the star that rose in the east didn't actually tell the Magi very much. All that it did was it got them to Jerusalem, piqued their interest. They knew something had happened. But it wasn't until they came to Jerusalem and it wasn't until God's word was opened up that they were actually able to discover its meaning and its significance. They knew something was afoot, that, that some king, some great one had been born, but they didn't know where. And although they asked who is this king that was born uh, king of the Jews, they did not themselves understand until God's word is opened up here for them to clearly see. The shocking thing in the whole story is that those who have the knowledge don't actually put this knowledge to its proper end. When Herod finds out where the baby's to be born, uh, the, the, the wise people of Jerusalem, as it were, the learned, the chief priests, the religious leaders, and all the scribes, they don't get up and go to Bethlehem, do they? It's only the Magi. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was born, and when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him, and they gave them his gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Here, uh, Jesus is just a baby for the religious elite. They take him for granted. And although these authorities did not desire to kill Jesus as Herod did, which we'll look at in just a second, their successors just a generation later, when Jesus could no longer be taken for granted, did seek his death. Even though the religious leaders, the religious elite, those with all this knowledge knew where the Messiah was to be born. They failed to join the Magi in their quest to worship him. But here's the thing. If God's own people who know his word will not honor his promised king, God will go out and find those who will. We read this parable in Luke chapter 14 that a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. 
But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I need to go look at it. Excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So the servant returned to his master. The owner of the house said, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. It's very easy to have immense amounts of knowledge and fail to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Knowledge without worship that accompanies it is useless. Finally, let's not miss the dark shadow that even at this early stage of Jesus' life hangs over him. At Jesus' birth, his death is already anticipated. Come back with me to verse seven. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. How long ago was this child born? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. The wise men are warned at the end of this section, verse 12, in a dream not to go back to Herod, but rather to return to their country by another route. And we discover in the rest of chapter two that Herod has all the babies born in Bethlehem under the age of two slaughtered. The gathering of the chief priests and the other Jewish leaders, the decision to do away with Jesus, even the title King of the Jews, the presence of all of those foreshadows what is to come at the end of the story when Jesus uh, with those same religious elites uh, would be condemned to death for being God's promised savior. Friends, the story both fascinates the mind and it has the power to stay with us from Christmas to Christmas. The mysterious magi, the rising of a star, uh, which you'll notice I didn't say very much about because we don't really know very much about it. We could speculate all we want on what it was, a comment or something completely supernatural. We're just not sure. But what we are sure of is that God was using this, using this to call the nations to himself, uh, using this to highlight uh, that those with the most, uh, with the greatest knowledge about the promised one missed his coming. Uh, the rising star, the birth of the king, the threat of the life to this infant, all of these things help to percolate our imaginations and to make us uh, delight, it, it enchants us, it draws us in. But if all the story does is simply entertain us and doesn't lead us, like the Magi, to a place of worship, then God's word has failed to do its work in your life today. You see, the world into which Jesus comes is a world of chaos and decay, 
When Jesus is born, uh, Jerusalem, instead of being overjoyed and troubled at, is troubled at the news. It's interesting the contrast between the disturbance in Jerusalem and the joy and the rejoicing when the Magi find the baby sitting on Mary's lap in Bethlehem. There's the contrast between the illegitimate ruler, Herod, who sits on Israel's throne, who wants to shed innocent blood, and the blood of the innocent one that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. This story shows us that the world is sick and is broken. It should be no wonder that the first words that Jesus publicly proclaimed were repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Friends, what we see in these wise men is that they believed in Christ when they had never seen him. They believed in him when the scribes and the Pharisees were unbelieving. But that's not all. They believed in him when they saw him a little infant on Mary's knees and they worshiped him as king. This was the crowning point of their faith. Here they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of his divinity or greatness or awesomeness. They saw nothing but a newborn, weak, helpless infant in his mother's arms, needing his mother's care, just like any one of us when we were born. We read of no greater faith than this in the whole Bible. And so more than anything else, the story of the wise men is an invitation to follow in their faith, to recognize that in Jesus, he is saving all kinds of people, people like these foreigners, whatever they were, and people like you and me, regardless of our pasts, regardless of where we're from, regardless of what we've done. He's not only saving us, he is saving our friends, those around us. And so again, let us hear the warning, not to be gatekeepers of the gospel, but to hold it out openly to all who will hear it. For we never know who God is calling to himself. Therefore, we read in Ephesians chapter one that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is Philippians two, sorry. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To see in Ephesians 1 that in him we have redemption through his blood, through God's grace that he has lavished on us. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times had reached their fulfillment and to bring unity to all things in heaven and on, on earth under Christ. And let us not forget these words from Revelation 7 as we keep eternity at the forefront of our vision. For on that day, there was before John a great multitude that no one could count. And that multitude was from every nation and tribe and people and language, 
all standing before the throne of the Lamb. And there they were, wearing white robes, holding out palm branches, and they cried out, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. That baby that the wise men put their faith in was the Savior of the world. Still today, he is your Savior. And so as we begin 2022, regardless of what is going on, will we be a people who have put our faith and trust in this Jesus alone for our salvation, for he is God with us and has come to save us from our sins. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, help us to see what the Magi saw in Jesus, your promised King, the one who would bring about your kingdom. And Father, may we live our lives in light of this. Would you call us to yourself this morning through his message of salvation? And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.